So in terms of how we support others' dignity, we have to first realize everybody's different and then make an effort to try to get a sense of uh, what matters to that person's self-worth and how do I um, make sure I'm on the right side of that. Welcome, everybody, to the Resiliency Theory Podcast. I'm Ashley Carson. Join in my journey as we discuss resiliency, values, and leadership with friends, peers, and leaders. Uh, Welcome back, everybody, to the Resiliency Theory Podcast. Uh, I have the great pleasure of having Marilyn just with me today. She is an author and a speaker on leadership. And in fact, Marilyn has a book that's being published on September 22nd. It's called The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility. My relationship with Marilyn uh, is through my MBA program at Seattle University, and I had the pleasure of having her as one of my professors. Marilyn, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you, Ashley. I um, will give you a little bit of background, both on my career as well as uh, some personal uh, information because it helps explain why I am where I am. So when I came out of my doctoral program, I moved into an academic world, having previously been both a, um, a manager and uh, a leader in the federal sector as well as private industry for a short while. And uh, when I finished my doctorate, I joined the faculty at Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, and then was Uh, recruited by University of Washington, where I was a research professor for 15 years and did a lot of work around uh, self-efficacy is kind of what I'm known for, which is a confidence-based variable uh, that predicts how well we believe we can perform certain tasks. So I had uh, an enjoyable time doing that work. And after about 15 years, really felt a need for change and moved to Seattle University, as you mentioned, um, on the faculty and also in a leadership role, heading the Center for Leadership Formation there. One of the real joys of my career has been working with a lot of people like yourself who are kind of mid-career stage uh, and, and hungry for learning how to do it better, uh, both from a behavioral standpoint as well as kind of the the knowledge base of business. So I have worked with hundreds of people from uh, local organizations for about the last 30 years between University of Washington, where I ran the EMBA programs for five years, and Seattle U. Um, and I've also just had the great fortune to work with a lot of uh, CEOs and senior managers at various companies who send people through the program. So it's given me a broad perspective on leadership. And I share that in part because that's what brought me to writing the book recently. And I'm very excited about its pending release. So thanks for for mentioning that uh, this topic of humility is uh, near and dear to my heart. We'll probably come back to that at some point. The other thing I want to mention, just sort of a personal level, is uh, as you know from uh, some of our private prior conversations on a personal level, I uh, did grow up in the South and Southeast during uh, the time when it was legally segregated. So as an African-American experiencing being on the downside of that, it's given me great insights into uh, how our behaviors affect the dignity of other people and the need to uh, really honor and support others' dignity. And, um, you know, some of the roots of humility, I think, come from that. And then some later experiences that I had uh, as well. So um, that's just a little bit of, you know, my background that brings me to this point. Great, great. Thank you for that, Marilyn. Well, I'm extremely excited for our conversation today. For those of you who have been following my podcast, you know I'm really passionate about resiliency, and I have a lot of curiosities around where it comes from. Is it innate? Can it be learned? Uh, and for me, it's like trying to understand are, is there some correlation between values and resiliency? And, and one of the things that I'm trying 
to prove or a question I actually have around values and resiliency is, is there a resiliency quotient? And, and what that means is, or maybe said differently, is, is there a values equation? So in so much that a certain set of values might uh, make, make an individual more or less resilient. And, and so uh, through some of my interviews, I have certainly started seeing similar trends and values in those that I've interviewed. And then from stories that they've shared and, and how they demonstrate as a leader, it's been really fun to just see some of the similarities that are presenting themselves. So to start, Marilyn, I'd love to hear, what are your top three to five values? Hmm. Well, let me, uh, let me tie back to humility and lead off with that one. I think um, the way I define humility is a tendency to feel and display a deep regard for others' dignity. So it really comes from a somewhat balanced uh, ego or it requires a balanced ego where uh, I think not only of myself, but I think about you and I learn to frame um, everything that I think and do in terms of whether or not it reflects and supports your dignity as well. And it doesn't mean I'm always going to do what you want or make decisions as a leader that are in line with what your desires are. But it does mean that I include you in that discussion, that I listen, that I pay attention, that I share with you how uh, I'm thinking. And if I'm not able to go down the path you want, that I'm very transparent about, you know, the fact that there are other stakeholders and here's why we might not be able to do exactly what you want. So I think the idea of feeling and displaying a regard for others' dignity guides our actions. It guides our thoughts. Uh, you know, I could tie it back, for example, to this notion of political correctness and how we talk. Uh, to me, the lens of thinking about someone else's dignity immediately puts um, clarity on what's appropriate to say and not say. And if it's if it's going to stomp all over their dignity, then the fact that I might think it's a funny joke doesn't uh, give me the right to go ahead and say that. So I think that uh, humility is one of my core values. Another one is integrity. Um, I've been accused of um, sort of searing honesty is how my best friend calls it. I think I've learned to moderate that a little bit more as I've gotten older, but uh, speaking the truth, um, doing what I say I'm going to do, uh, doing things in an ethical way, all of those sort of fall into this notion of integrity for me. And being fairly robust about that is very important uh, as one of my values. I think another one is just um, a deep value for excellence and desire to pursue that usually in service to others, but the value itself uh, really is on, am I, doing, am I doing this to the best of my ability? Am I working with people who give that of themselves? Um, and it's just something that I care, I care a great deal about, and that kind of ties into you know, growth mindset and a number of other uh, things that you hear about, but you know, just uh, my own personal search for excellence, if you will. And then I guess another value that, as you were talking about resiliency and how uh, how people get there, and I, I don't know that I have a map for you of that, but one of the things that is a value of mine is a sense of personal agency, being aware of that and using it. And when I use it, it means a couple of things. It means that I take ownership for myself and for how I act. I can't always control what happens in the environment. So obviously we're in an environment of COVID and the shutdown and I don't have control over that. But, you know, as I found myself feeling despondent in the first few weeks of that, um, my value on personal agency had me sort of sit down with myself and say, they're there. How are we going to make the best of this situation? How can, what is it that you could do that can make you feel better about your days and your life, given that this is the situation? So I think some of the things that tie into me 
for me with this um, use of personal agency include things like um, moving past victimhood. Uh, It's easy, I think, to have bad things happen and then say uh, legitimately, well, I was a victim of this or I suffered through that. Uh, Yes, and. And I guess for me, it's there's an and. That was life side of the story. Now, where's your voice? Where is your side of the story? How do you want to move forward? And um, I'm not a person who allows herself to stay in the victim box because I see that as a trap, a box. It's very confining and limiting in my life. And so I think um, stepping out of that box, it doesn't mean you deny that bad things happen or that there was pain but maybe you find ways to transcend that so that you uh, come out on the other side, um, you know, maybe drawing on the positive things that uh, you gained as a person that you might not have gained had you not had the rough stuff happen, or maybe the insights and opportunities to help others. You know, there's almost always some way in which you can extract something that's good out of the ore of the bad, if you will. And so I think that that um, personal agency for me brings the control uh, responsibility back to myself for how do I uh, get out of situations um, that could be victimizing and not stay in that victim mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I wrote down uh, humility, integrity, the a value of excellence and really in particular service to others. And then um, I, this idea of personal agency. And, and one of the things I really liked uh, that you shared around personal agency is um, transcending, transcending, right. And really learning and, and looking at what is the positive side or what can I take from this and what are insights and opportunities? I sort of have this personal belief um, that we are all uh, doing the best we can with the faculties that we have and how can we look at every experience and, and look at every scenario that we are faced with and learn from that. Right. And I, and for me, from a resiliency perspective, I think the the learning piece of it is really where I believe people practice that resiliency muscle and learn and have more self-awareness around what that is. And so I really, I really appreciated that piece of that, your definition around personal agency. Thank you. Um, well, I'd love to uh, just understand a little bit, Marilyn, where did your values come from? Like, what's the history of them? Were there certain experiences? Wow. Well, I think, um, obviously, like most people, I can trace a lot of those values to my parents and my larger family, kind of how I was raised. Um, You know, my dad in particular was somebody I always admired, both for his resilient, his, sorry, his humility, as well as his integrity and his excellence. So I think all of those, you know, I think I would, I would say were very well modeled by him. And, and personal agency was part of that too. You know, he was a man who came from very humble beginnings. And, you know, particularly, again, as an African American family uh, in the South, when it was segregated, his opportunities were very, very limited. But he managed to um, get his college education, get his master's degree. Ultimately, you know, when he got out of uh, serving in the war, he had the GI Bill. And while that could not be used for housing as it could for whites, um, he was able to use that for his doctoral education. And so um, he went that route. And I think I've just really admired that gave him access to a career in higher ed. And although it was kind of historically black universities, uh, mostly in the South, um, that he started his career in. uh, And so I was born just before he started his doc program and kind of grew up on college campuses. But that brought a kind of lifestyle to our family that was um, exceptional And then later he moved into National Science Foundation and did some really incredible stuff with his uh, final 18, 20-year 
career there. And so I've really admired as he moved into, you know, being the U.S. rep to the NATO Science Committee and coordinator for foreign affairs and so forth for National Science Foundation, I admired his humble beginnings and how he moved through. And along the way, I saw the integrity, I saw the humility, I saw the the drive for excellence, the personal responsibility, um, and and those were just things that you know they they taught. My mom also taught a fair amount of that. She wasn't as active professionally, uh, but I saw many of those values being mirrored uh, by her as well. So that was the first uh, foundation for those. I think on the uh, you know, what do you do with your own life when you start to become, um, you know, somewhat independent as you grow into the teen years and beyond? I think that's where I made some personal choices around responsibility. And, you know, I don't often put this out there um, publicly, but I will say my mother was not a person who, in my view, used personal agency very well. She was more one who uh, would would blame, would criticize, was not happy, but didn't seem to use the resources she had at hand to create more joy for herself. And she had a lot of opportunity to do that. And so in some ways, well, you know, I don't think I realized this until I was almost 40 years old. I realized, you know, she was just as powerful a teacher but in a different way. It was learning what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to be someone who felt um, that she was in a box or who failed to use her own agency when she had it to look at some positive outcomes that she could have created for herself. So I think uh, mom also taught me some of that. And by watching her own uh, struggles, dysfunction, if you will, I think that's when I went back and I processed some of the things that had hurt me as a young child uh, growing up in the South. And I realized, you know what, that's history. And yeah, it hurt. But what are you going to do going forward? How do you transcend that? How do you move forward? So it's a little bit of a backdrop on how I came to value those things. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that, Marilyn. Sure. Um, Before we move on, I'd love if you could give a definition for the listeners, maybe for those who haven't heard the term uh, self-agency before? Like, how would you describe that? What what might be the definition? Um, You know, it it derives from free will, the fact that all of us have free will. Now, a lot of people will say, well, no, I can't do this. I'm not allowed to do that. The laws, those are constraints on our free will. But we, as humans, have a capacity to think and to make choices and our actions are guided by the decisions that we make. And so personal agency really is this uh, component of that that says, I get to decide, you know, whether I'm going to stay in the house today or whether I'm going to go out to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. I get to decide whether I'll say yes to Ashley's request or no to Ashley's request. And so there are hundreds of decisions that we make every day and over the course of, you know, a year, a lot of those decisions shape how our lives begin to run. So if I am uh, overweight and out of shape and I feel I should be doing something more than I am about that, uh, am I a person then who says, well, Marilyn, what have you been doing about it? Are you holding yourself accountable? What actions are you taking day by day by day to create the state you're in or the state you want to be in? And I um, choose to be a person who owns it and says, for for better or for worse, I am exercising agency over most of my life. Now, again, there are things beyond our control. You know, the pandemic uh, is just one example, and that puts some constraints on my free will. I'd love to be able to get out and play with friends and, you know, um, be doing more work outside as opposed to this conference, which is being done remote. But um, for now, that doesn't make sense. And so that's simply a constraint on my personal agency. Uh, But I believe we have 
more agency than we do constraints. Yeah, that's great. I really appreciate that. Um, I know, like for me personally, kind of going back to that learning from each experience, you know, I sort of approached life from this mindset that I do have choice Mm -hmm. and my choices have consequences and good or bad. Right. Right. And, and, and for me, it's really important to check myself and ask myself those questions. So if we go back to your example of, you know, am I as fit as I, as I want to be, or as I, as I was before my two-year MBA program? No. Am I doing anything about it? You know? And so I have the ability to change and I have the ability to take action. And and so that's, that's really a personal philosophy of mine and how I try and practice my life. I, I would say I don't always do it perfect, but certainly, you know, I like to try and exercise um, personal agency as well. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, none of us is perfect, Ashley. Right. The question is, when we start to observe our patterns, we see that we're using that free will, that agency for some things, you know, maybe I, maybe I use it to sit down with a box of chocolates and watch TV, or maybe I use it to go work out, but I'm making choices, right? And the, the important thing is to, in my view, to, to own all of that and, and to take credit for the good outcomes, but also take responsibility for the parts that aren't going so well, because only when we take responsibility do we feel empowered to make change. Absolutely. And it it pushes people uh, away from like that victim mentality because you really are aware of your own accountability and your own role in that. that Right. I really appreciate that. Um, Well, let's think, I'd love to have you think about a time when one of your values uh, was challenged and what was it? What was the value? What happened? How did you respond? Just, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. So this goes back a ways, but um, it was a career issue. So I mentioned integrity and I had moved from working for NASA into um, a company that will remain nameless, but it had about a thousand employees and several field offices and was one of the, I was in the Washington DC area. So this would be, you know, known as one of the Beltway Bandit companies that did contracting with the federal government. And I had moved from uh, running procurement office in NASA to being director of contracts with this company for a while. And uh, the government had some really tight restrictions on how you do bidding for them or what you put in proposals. Mm-hmm. And um, I was over a unit of about a dozen people that had responsibility for all the costing and pricing proposals. We had to get stuff in by certain deadlines and so forth. And I remember talking to one of the vice presidents um, about a large proposal we had coming up. It was for about, I don't know, 15 million or so, not huge by government standards, but for this particular company, it was a, you know, chunk of change. And, um, he wanted to do something. And I said, well, you know, that's not really legal. And I'm the one that had to sign the proposals Mm. under penalty of perjury or, you know, technically if, if it was fraudulent, I could go to jail. But um, I was, so I was advising him that part of what he was asking us to do was not the way we could technically bid Mm -hmm. um, our rates and so forth. And he First time I said that, said, okay. And then he came back having reworked something, but it still wasn't accurate. Mm -hmm. And so in frustration, he said to me, well, you need to remember who you're working for now. You're not working for the government anymore. You're working for us. And it's important for us to win this proposal. So I need you to put this in here and, you know, get it over there. And that was a really shocking thing for me to do. I was reasonably young at the time, you know, about 30 years old. But I recall really having a hard time when I when I went home that evening um, and I just decided I would not do it. Um, I wouldn't do it. I was going to put in what was right. I'd get the proposal in on time. And I don't think we won that particular bid, but not because of that issue that we had competition that outbid us technically. 
But I remember he was very frustrated when he saw the final proposal that I hadn't done um, what he had done. And I didn't get fired. I didn't get, you know, I mean, there was no formal action taken other than I had kind of burned a political bridge. Mm -hmm. But it it was a moment of wake up for me around, well, what are your values? What are you willing to sell down the river in order to get ahead? Or are you not? And um, I had come out of a very mission-driven organization working for NASA, meaning, you know, space exploration. I'd been a space buff as a kid and um, was now working in an organization where it had more of a mission to make a profit and was willing perhaps to compromise. I I don't want to say this is true of private industry as a whole. This was a particular company whose values I felt were questionable yeah. And so what it did for me was um, it's, it was one of the things that made me decide, you know, I want to go back into um, a not-for-profit space where I'm really doing something that's more about the mission. And, you know, that contributed to my deciding to go back for my doctorate, move into higher ed. And, you know, I've, I've been able to um, be focused on serving others and that kind of mission uh, since then. So, but yeah, I think that initial challenge to my own integrity uh, is just one example, and that's how I dealt with it. Yeah. Reflecting back on that experience, Marilyn, would you have done anything differently? Uh, the current Marilyn mm-hmm. would have uh, <laughs> would have given would have spoken truth to power more than I did as a 30 year old to someone who at that time was probably early fifties and outranked me. So I didn't, I mean, I had pointed out to him that what he was asking was technically illegal, but I didn't um, stand my ground. I I dealt with it by, uh, well, first of all, I was shocked and I was struggling with how to deal with it. And then ultimately I dealt with it just sort of passively, he ultimately knew because he could see the final proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't have the the language, the courage to just stand my ground and say, no, I'm director of contracts. I'm not signing my name to this. Mm-hmm. You want to sign your name to it, yeah. you know, feel free, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And that's what I would do differently today. That leads me to um, my next question and and just how you phrased you know, the Maryland now, I'm wondering, do you think that values remain the same throughout the course of our life? Uh, yes and no. I, I think that values certainly can change and they, they often do from major experience that causes. So, so values, you know, I kind of believe in Ayn Rand's definition, which is, you know, values are that which we act to gain or keep. So it's not, just words that we say, because most of us will say we have values that are what the academics call socially desirable, meaning we know what society says we should value. So we think we value those things. And then what you really have to do is say, how do people put that into practice when they have choices to make or votes to give or whatever? And that, you know, the pattern of that reflects what they actually value. So I think one of the things that happens in life is we have opportunities to test that, like that value of integrity uh, got tested. My actions show that, yeah, this was not a superficial value for me. A different person might have just said, well, okay, I'll do what this person in authority wants me to do and what my new employer wants me to do. Um, But that didn't sit well for me. So I think that when the value is solid and your sense of the value is accurate, it probably doesn't change very much over time. Um, If it's not as deep a value or you just thought you really valued it, but you really don't care, then yeah, you can have, uh, you can have that move around. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, uh, an earlier guest uh, sort of reflected on it as this concept of a values audit, which I actually really appreciate. And, Mm -hmm. and I think at certain moments and with different experiences in our life, it's, it's important for us to pause and, uh, and, and really ask ourselves, are we showing up or are we practicing our values or are we challenged and what are we doing about that? Right. And I think um, you're right. 
you know, one of the values that became really clear to me was around like credibility and integrity. And that was just through more recent life experiences where I realized, wow, credibility of character and the integrity of someone is, is a very high value of mine. And if they're not, if they're not practicing right, and they're, and, they, and they're not demonstrating integrity, that's really hard for me. It creates a level of dissonance because right. for me, it's such an important value, but, it, but it was always a value of mine, but there were really particular experiences where it became very clear how important it was to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's shift now. And I'd love to spend a little bit of time talking about values and resiliency. So, um, to start, Marilyn, do you think values and resiliency correlate? Some values, yes. So, I, you know, I mentioned personal agency. Um, I think that that enables resiliency significantly. You know, if you have a strong sense of personal agency, you're going to be able to bounce back and pull yourself out of a slump or um, negative experiences more quickly. I think, um, you know, the same thing can probably be said for the value for excellence, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, other values, I, you know, I'm not sure I see as tight a link between, say, integrity and resiliency, Mm -hmm. um, unless you're talking about my perception of myself as somebody who's efficacious, which gets back to the personal agency again. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think some values do connect with resilience, but a lot of that, I mean, resilience to me is this idea of working through, uh, a trauma or a, a really difficult situation or bouncing back once you kind of get knocked down. And I think that that really ties back to the personal agency, what you are willing to do to lift yourself up. I mean, hopefully you get some support from others along the way too, but we can't always count on that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of my next questions was your, your definition of resiliency. And so thank you for that. Mine is, it's similar. It's uh, how we might respond in like the wake of challenge or adversity. And then what I shared early, earlier, it's not just the response. It's what you learn from it. And then how do right. we grow as individuals? And, and, right. and looking at it from a introspective place of like, okay, what, what, what did I do in that scenario? And what can I do differently going forward? Right. That's, that's where, that, to me, that's the key. Um, so I, I appreciate that. I wonder, um, so going back to your experience where um, your value of integrity was challenged, I am wondering, just based on your previous answer, do you think at any point, whether it's the perception of self or the value of integrity, where resiliency sort of came through in that experience with that former boss? Hmm. You know, it, it, it trended out over a long period of time. That particular incident was probably not one that was all that deeply challenging for me. Okay. So, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of recovery needed. I mean, yeah. it, it spun me around for an evening of being shocked that someone would actually on the face of being told this is illegal, basically say, get over it and go do it anyway. Yeah. I had not had that kind of experience in my career before. So there was shock around it and a need to really, I mean, yes, they did pay my paycheck. So I needed to figure out well how I was going to deal with it, but it was pretty quick answer in my own head of, you know, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do what he wants to do. Um, there's certainly been other situations where, you know, it was a deeper cut, if you will, and took more effort to bounce back. And and your question then was, how do I, how did I do that? Like, at what point or where did resiliency take over, right? And so from that experience, either what is it you learned or where do you think resiliency took over? So I think, so my... Childhood was not easy, um, either in the home setting. I mentioned my mother's uh, struggles, and so that really kind of created a tone in the family life that was not good. Um, And, you know, growing up in a segregated world was not good. Integrating a school was not good. And so I went through pretty much my first 20, 21 years of um, life 
feeling not so good and not really good about myself as part of that. And, you know, I mentioned to you at one point, you know, on the side of uh, how I not only had grown up in a Southern, in a sort of segregated Southern context while it was still legally segregated, but I later went to Howard university, which was, um, is a historically black college, but I, I hit that in the late sixties, which was the height of the black, Pride Black Power Movement, and as a fair-skinned Black, experienced kind of um, discrimination in reverse, where I was not in vogue <laughs> at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I was considered someone who really couldn't relate well to the Black experience. I didn't reflect the look that was, you know, popular at the time of, you know, Afro and, um, you know, sort of the Black Power Movement. And so I got... Um, bullied and labeled and, you know, a number of things were a number of comments, which were very painful. And so I share that just to say the context of race as a social construct has hit me from multiple dimensions over my life. And when I, when I got to the point and, you know, the last major hit on that was probably, um, you know, when I was in my mid twenties, and it began to open up a lot of those earlier experiences. And I was really struggling with trying to figure out the who am I piece and uh, was really not feeling good about myself. And somewhere in there is when the personal agency really started to take hold. And it was, you know, I was teaching elementary school at the time. My husband was in law school. We weren't going to be able to afford Um, for me to get any kind of counseling. But I just remember thinking, you've got to find a way to think through this and find yourself on a more positive footing. And so one of the things I did was um, that also was around a transition point of moving into work for NASA in procurement, which just really opened up a lot of um, professional and intellectual and social opportunities for me meaning getting out of an elementary school classroom where you're locked in with 10-year-olds all day to working in an office context with people in multiple skill sets and really just being able to branch out, spread your wings, grow, learn. Uh, And that was very affirming uh, to be able to make adult-to-adult connections and do well in a role I was learning in. So I kind of began to look at that piece and say, there's some real positive stuff in life. Yeah. Maybe you haven't tasted the full menu yet, yeah. but that you made a choice to move from a career that while you like teaching, you can look back and say it really wasn't feeding you. It wasn't nourishing me intellectually. It didn't have the salary growth that I, I wanted. Right. And so to make the choice, I mean, I, I knew so many people who were unhappy with it, but were kind of afraid to, do the work because it was a lot of work to get out of there. Um, And I think having recognized that I was willing to do the work, I was willing to take the leap and look, it ended up a couple years later in something much, much better for me. And that just really began to affirm this notion of, you know, you have a lot of control, a lot of power. And now you can also look at the positives and weigh that against the little negative voices and say, to the negative voices, you know, that's a voice of the past and that's a belittling voice. And I'm, I'm going to choose to not take you on this new ride I'm going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes some effort to learn to do that, but to not let it define you and hold you back going forward was part of the res- resiliency work. Yeah. Thank you for that, Marilyn. I, I know you'd shared some stories uh, while we were, while I was in the program and I just, always appreciate uh, your level of vulnerability and um, you know, how authentic you are in, in showing up and sharing really painful stories. So yeah, they are tough. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that. Going back to resiliency. I'd love to hear from you. Do you think that all people have some level of resiliency? No, <laughs> I, I think they have the inherent capability. Okay. I think all of us, are endowed with um, the basics for that. Mm -hmm. 
um, my observation, you know, so if you think about mental health, it's a continuum. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And, you know, there are people at an extreme end of that continuum who um, are not in touch with reality and therefore may not have the capacity for resilience, yeah. you know, moving back toward a more normal end of the spectrum. I think, yes, everyone has it. I do think that there are people, though, kind of in that in-between where they may be functioning in life, but they have patterns that they have allowed themselves. I think initially you allow yourself to fall into it, maybe not even realizing that it's not helpful for you, but patterns where you externalize things that that you don't enjoy in life. It's somebody else's fault or some bad luck that happened, or, um, you know, you you move into patterns of blame and externalization. And I think if you get locked into that way of thinking, you functionally, you can be said to not have personal agency. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are people like that. And I think if, if those patterns persist into adulthood, they are really, really tough to change. So then I, I wonder, Considering that everyone has like the inherent capability to be resilient, do you think it can be taught? And if so, how? Yeah, I do think it can be taught. So again, going back to people who are pretty normal from a uh, psychological standpoint, yeah. I think it I think it can be taught by helping people, uh, first of all, really get that they do have will, that they're using it all day, every day. And then maybe to begin examining how am I using it? And what are the consequences of those choices? You know, because as I said, we're making hundreds of small choices all day, every day, right? What are the consequences of those? um, Not just the individual choice, because you're not going to debrief at the end of the day, every single, you know, decision, but the patterns of choices. Uh, So you use the example of am I as fit as I was before I went into my grad program? Um, And if not, what am I doing about it? And so asking ourselves those kinds of questions. And when, when we continue to say, well, I value fitness, hypothetically, and oh, I'm not doing anything about it, then asking the self, where's my accountability? Am I willing to say that on a, on a rank ordering of values, this one is actually pretty low because I'd rather you know, not exercise or whatever than I would to take care of that. So I think, I think it can be taught by helping people understand that they do have personal agency and doing kind of an audit of the behavior of the things we say we want. And then the behaviors we're, we're undertaking that either help us get there or lead us down a different path. Yeah. I appreciate that. I'm just thinking, well, I'm sort of straddling in my brain, like, personal versus professional, right? So in a professional setting, I I wonder, and I'd love to learn from you, like, how do you teach someone that they have will? And then how do you help them do that self-reflective work to to just understand the choices that they are making have consequences and that they have the ability? Because I think personally, it's maybe a little bit easier, but in the workforce, um, I'm not sure if you have any ideas around how to help people understand that. I think you have to break it down. You almost have to break it down by the set of tasks that they're not exercising will on. So Mm -hmm. if you have an employee who um, is coming to you all the time waiting for you to make the decisions, you know, you may need to have a conversation that this is actually in the set of responsibilities that go with your role. And so let's look at what some of the forthcoming analyses or decisions need to be. And, you know, you can do this. You know how to do this. Here are some people you might need to engage to help you analyze or decide. I want you to try that uh, and come back and let me know what your recommendation would be. So you might have to help structure that practice for them, but be really clear that they do have some will to use in this. I've had employees in the past who will let you make every decision that they should be making if you allow that. And fortunately, um, I've not been someone who's willing to take that on for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think when it comes to, 
you know, where, where it can get interesting on another employment level is with group dynamics where you have personalities that have to blend and maybe you have a personality that isn't blending well Mm -hmm. and that person uh, needs to be making different choices, using their agency to moderate behavior or adjust in that front. And, you know, that's another coaching, counseling kind of discussion, but it also gets to your question of, is this an ability that everybody has? Because there are some people, and again, this kind of gets at you're moving away from normal patterns where they really can't. They don't have an ability to see themselves. They don't have the Mm self-awareness. They may have in their head that they do, but it doesn't somehow translate into the behavior that needs to be corrected. So that may be a different set of decisions you have to make when that manifests. But I think with most people, you can, um, you know, take it back to the behavior, take it back to the expectations of how you want them to behave and then coach and hold them accountable for that. And they can start to learn. That's great. You know, one thing, well, there's two thoughts I have. One is around, you know, this idea of if people have the ability like on that spectrum. Right. And, and one thing I was thinking about uh, my son, he's 23. He, I wonder if he has the emotional intelligence to be ready to try and practice resiliency. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and what's coming up for me is oftentimes when something bad happens to him, it happens to him and he hasn't shifted that mindset to realize, okay, well you had a choice in that decision. Mm-hmm. And and you continue to make the choice, and now here is the consequence of that choice. Right. And so, you know, I, I think so. There definitely is a spectrum of where people fall, and right, not they have the ability. They're maybe not ready. Um, they've not really taken the time to do any of that work, and so that it's an it's important. I think in business to think about the whole person, right, and maybe where they're at, and and whether or not even if it can be trained, just understanding where people are at from just your starting point. The other thing that um, I really appreciate when you talked about the coaching counseling, I often, when I support managers and leaders and, and employees, if they come to me with a problem and they look to me to solve their problem, um, I often challenge them back and say, okay, well, I I understand what's happening. What do you think you can do differently? What do you think you can do to solve that problem? And so trying to help them get to more of a solution focused mindset. Right. um, Right. Which I think that starts to build upon that. Right. Absolutely. Will allowing them to take a risk and, and share with me maybe their thoughts around solutioning. Right. So let's shift to just, um, leadership a little bit. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time around like, um, values in business and values in leadership. So, um, for yourself, Marilyn, uh, how do your values show up in, in, in your role, either at the, at the school or as an author and a speaker? How do you see them showing up? I think getting back to the integrity piece, it's being one person through and through, regardless of whether I'm at work or I'm at home with friends. I, I try to have a clear sense of my own moral and personal compass and and that's just who I am and it shows up everywhere uh, the same way you know in the book where I talk about humility as really um, feeling and displaying regard for others dignity I, I talk about three real questions we all have of leaders and that's you know who are you where are we going and do you see me and then we judge behaviors of the leaders to get our own answers and the sort of mirror format of their behaviors would be um, who I am, (laughs) uh, the direction I set and how I treat you. So when I think of the piece of who I am, uh, you know, and I, and I say this in the book, the two most important things really are a balanced ego because that allows me to see you as opposed to being arrogant, um, or being too meek. I mean, you could you could go either way with that, but um, it takes a balanced ego to bring your confidence forward, but at the same time to really see another 
human beings' needs and their dignity and to support that. And then the other uh, who, am, who I am piece is about integrity. Do I speak truthfully? Uh, can you count on my word? Um, can you trust that my word and my actions are going to be the same? And so I think as a leader, the who I am piece is most critical. And when people don't have balanced ego or they don't have integrity, you're going to have problems. You're just going to have, because leading is a relationship and those will fundamentally violate that relationship. I love that. Leading is a relationship. And it just makes me think of the, the thought, the philosophy we talked about in school a lot, which is leading as a verb, you know, yes. like <laughs> balancing, it, balancing the fact that it's an action that you have yeah. to take. And also it's about building that relationship. Right. Um, so let's, I'd love to dive into just humility a little bit more. If you don't mind, I'd love to spend a little bit of time on that. And, you know, part of what I, what is really valuable for me in these podcasts is just this spirit of continuous learning and helping leaders with maybe new concepts as a leader or helping them learn um, collectively, all of us as a community. And so just when you think about this idea of humility, Marilyn, and I know you started sharing a little bit about what's in your book, but I'd love to just hear. If I were a leader and I was trying to support, well, I have two thoughts, but I'll start with one. If I, if I was a leader and I was trying to support my employees developing humility, what would maybe be some of the steps that I could take to help them do that? So, you know, there's a section in the book where I talk about how we develop it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I go back to this notion of, you know, what is the what are the essential ingredients? Mm. And I think for that concept, humility, it takes uh, good self-awareness and the willingness to use your will to learn it. And if somebody has those two things, if they're really already fairly self-aware and they're willing to get better at it, it's really not hard to teach. It's helping them then understand that um, here's what dignity is. Everybody has and needs a sense of self-worth. And there's a couple of components. There's the, you know, life itself is valuable, so we don't go around killing people, uh, which most of us get. But then there's the more personal piece of, you know, what are all of the things about Ashley that make her a different person than Marilyn? And of those things about Ashley, what are the ones that she has strong feelings about? And those could be happy feelings or negative feelings. But those are going to be things that fit into her concept of self-worth. And so I want to be able to um, treat those well. I want to honor them. I want to respect them. And I'll give a couple of examples. And this is, you know, what I, what I do when I'm trying to train people to improve their humility. It's, um, you know, I may be, you know, somewhat for example, overweight and struggling with that and sensitive to that uh, because I'm not having the success with it that I want. And if I'm around somebody who starts making comments, it says, you know, that say things like people who are overweight or lazy, or they're just, um, they don't care about their health or whatever. I'm going to feel that. And I'm going to feel it as a hit and it's going to hit my dignity, whether I say that or not. So if I'm working for someone who's a leader and that person starts to step into my dignity space, then I'm going to start feeling less enthusiastic, um, less engaged. Uh, so it just starts to hurt. On the other side, on the other hand, maybe I uh, take a lot of pride in my appearance and the way I dress and Um, you know, if somebody compliments me on that, then I'm going to feel even better about that. Right. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how we support others dignity, we have to first realize everybody's different Mm -hmm. and then make an effort to try to get a sense of, uh, what matters to that person's self-worth and how do I, um, make sure I'm on the right side of that. So, you know, you think of, a lot of, again, going back to political correctness, a lot of the things that have been objected to have been things that people say and do that are either harmful or insensitive 
to a lot of the diversity that's human. A lot of racial jokes, a lot of gay jokes, a lot of um, you know jokes about appearance or intelligence. All of these things have become sensitivities because we're multicultural enough to say, I may be unique and I matter, and you need to honor the things that are important to me and not you know, stomp all over that. So from a leadership standpoint, because leading is a relationship, we have to really get it that others' dignity um, is, is fundamental to that relationship, and you've just got to have enough humility to support that. And so I, teach, I think you teach it by talking about dignity, about yeah. what goes into dignity and how important it is yeah. in a relationship. And if the person has self-awareness, reasonable self-awareness and the will to learn, it's not hard to become more humble. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I keep, I um, put a little box by this idea of understanding one's self-worth because I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I hundred percent agree, Marilyn leadership is a relationship, right? Uh, and that, and, and I think sometimes as leaders, we're so busy uh, focused on the day-to-day or the tactical or the strategy that we forget that also as a leader, it is about building relationships with those. It is. You. And, and so I'm wondering, do you have any recommendations on how leaders can balance all of that busyness with the relationship and, and in particular understanding someone's self-worth, like how do they get to the meat of the, what is, what defines one's self-worth, right? What, what does that look like? So I think those are two, those are two good questions. How do you balance it? And then how do you get to the meat of the self-worth? Obviously, if you're leading a team of hundreds, you can't really get to know well, everybody who might be in your organization, right? But you typically have a team of direct reports. That's a lot less than that. And so let's say you've got Six to 10 people would be fairly normative who report directly to you. I, I don't see it why leaders can't invest the time to get to know those people. And it doesn't have to be, okay, Ashley, let's sit down and have a four-hour slugfest today where you tell me your whole life history and everything about yourself that you value. Uh, we're going to be coming in contact with each other several times a week, most likely over a period of months, years. Uh, it doesn't take that much to spend an extra three to five minutes in many conversations and, and take it to a slightly deeper level rather than just the immediate task, you know, whether it's sincerely asking how was your weekend or how are you adapting to working remote or, you know, do you have kids at home that you're trying to juggle at the same time? I mean, there are lots of, uh, entrees into conversation that help you get to know people a little better, um, even though it's a professional context, and get a sense of what matters to them. Yeah. So I think there is the, how do you balance it? You invest the time. You realize these aren't widgets. You know, we talk human resources, which I almost think is a disservice because it puts it on a page of, you know, assets and liabilities, and you start to treat people like they're money. Um, which yes, there's a translation to that, but they're, but you know, they're not robots. And so you just have to invest the time to do that. Um, I think the, the other piece is, you know, really just thinking about the general context of how do we support others dignity. And, you know, I mentioned the basic, you know, we believe in life itself being valuable, but even moving into the more individual or personal aspect of dignity, there are some general themes. We mm-hmm. all need and have a sense of self-worth. So yeah. any comments I might make that would be demeaning or bullying or rude are no-no. That's not going to make, I, you know, I can't think of too many people on the planet who would welcome that. So <laughs> there's some general, and yet you see that a lot in leaders, yeah. right? You see it all the time. Uh, as if it's okay to insult and demean and be rude to people um, when that doesn't support anybody's dignity. Right. So part of how you make the time to do it is to learn some basics about how do we treat people respectfully and honor self-worth in general. And if you do that, 
you're about 70, 80% of the way there. Yeah, that's great. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about when when you were talking through the idea that everyone has basic needs. I mean, if you just take it back to like the um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? There are just some minimum basic needs that we all have. And then absolutely building upon, making sure those needs are met so that we have that sort of psychological safety, right? Have our needs met before we can move on and, and you know, get better tours truer um, version of ourselves. Right. So I have a couple more questions um, that I'd love to, to ask you and just continue to learn from you. So I really have appreciated our conversation. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I would love, so kind of taking it back to the questions or question I'm trying to answer around resiliency and this idea that maybe there is a, a quotient or a values equation. I'd love to hear from you Marilyn, do you think there is a resiliency quotient or a values equation where someone is possibly more resilient due to a set of values? You know, I haven't studied the literature on resilience. I have studied the literature on values. It's very hard to measure values in in part because people think they value things they don't actually take consistent action on. Uh, you can only really assess what they really value over a long period of time, watching how they act. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to the link between resilience and values, it's a little fuzzy for me. Okay. I do think there's probably a way to assess a resilience quotient. And I think there are some measures out there, although I haven't really looked at them. And my guess is it ties back to a lot of how people process in their heads, what happens, and make attributions about where the cause and the control is. So, you know, there's this concept called locus of control, which is really about whether we take personal responsibility or whether we tend to externalize a lot of things and and blame. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we all go through this journey called life, having a mix of good and not so good stuff that happens. And yet we're the sense-making side of that, right? So we get to determine what does that event or series of events mean? How does it affect me? And am I limited to my initial reaction or can I move that around some kind of way? And so I think the resiliency quotient in my head is really how much functionality does someone have to manage their longer-term reactions and actions to adversity. So, you know, the initial reaction, I think, for all of us is pretty uniform, which is shock, pain, maybe. But then what? Yeah. So to me, resilience begins at the then what, and it begins with how I process it intellectually. Yeah. What meaning, how do I interpret it? Do I interpret it as, oh, this person hurt me, but they probably didn't mean it. Like someone steps on your toe or they bump into you, you know, getting on an elevator in the old days when we did that. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, do you, do you make an attribution that it was accidental or do you say they meant it? They were trying to hurt me or um, they were being insensitive because they're just an insensitive schmuck. So there's lots of different meaning that we can make out of what happened. And then even once we've made the meaning, How do we respond? Do we say, well, yes, that hurt, but I'm not going to be stuck in the pattern of a victim. I'm going to have a conversation with that person, let them know this is what they said. This is how I felt. And I would appreciate that they not treat me that way again. Mm -hmm. Um, Am I going to just maybe not have that conversation, but pick myself up and move on? I mean, there are lots of different choices we can make too. So I think resiliency starts with after the shock and the pain, Mm -hmm. how do we process it mentally? And then what choices do we make? And if you were to think of a quotient, Mm -hmm. to me, it's about, well, what would the average level response be? What would a weak response be? And what would a really strong one be? Mm -hmm. Um, And what, if you look at a given individual, do they tend to respond at a, a weak and average or a strong level kind of thing. Great. I love, uh, I really liked how, um, when you said, then what, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like right to the point. What do you, you know, as we experience and in the wake of challenge and adversity, yes. And then what do you do with it? Right. You know, 
Um, so I, I have one last question and looking at it a little bit differently. If you had to, Marilyn, um, how would you define your resiliency quotient? Uh, I would say it's pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've had a fair amount of adversity in my life. And a, I mean, there's certainly many, many people who've had much worse adversity. <laughs> so I have to kind of couch it there. If I look across the globe, uh, there's some really horrid situations mm-hmm. that people are born into or live into. So I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the bottom half, mm-hmm. but in the context of people in this country who are say, you know, middle-class or above, you know, yeah, I've had some adversity in my life and it could have really been um, devastating. And I have, uh, used my own personal agency to kind of stay, um, you know, to take choice, to make choices that move me forward and out of bad situations, but also to find ways to stay happy and healthy and continue to care and love and serve other people. And that to me is also a definition of being a healthy person psychologically Um, you know, some people can close down and they can say, well, you know, you can't trust bad stuff happens. So it's, I'm going to look out for me. Um, that's a different way of dealing with victimhood, but I think you're still a victim when, when that becomes your pattern of choices. Yeah. Yeah. You're letting it direct you. Well, this has been really great, Marilyn. Uh, I have really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, there's been a lot of really good nuggets that I've written down. And I think um, I just really appreciate your time today. I'm Thank excited you. for your book. Uh, again, Thank it's you. coming out on September 22nd. And it's wow. called The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility. So looking forward to reading that. And um, Thank you. love to chat with you afterwards. Just um, my like have a dialogue around the book and my thoughts on the book. So I, okay, great. Again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Marilyn. I really, thank you, Ashley. Good luck with it. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fun so far and I've learned so much from all the people that I've interviewed so far. Can't wait to see them live. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah. Be well. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. I'm Ashley Carson. Thanks for listening to the resiliency theory podcast. Our journey of learning and my quest to understand resiliency continues. Check out my blog at resiliencytheory.com to continue this conversation. Or if you want to listen to my next podcast, follow me there. If you'd like to connect with me, there are a few ways. You can follow me on my Instagram page at resiliencytheory or my LinkedIn page at Ashley Smith Carson. You can also email me at hello at resiliencytheory.com. 